Opening our Bibles today to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, of course you know this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the greatest words spoken, some of the greatest words ever penned are found in this 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of Jesus. Those of you who went to Israel with us, we went to the place where they believe is the, the, the mount, the Sermon on the Mount, that area, Mount of Beatitudes. There's actually some churches there. It's actually very beautiful. Wherever it was, we know it's somewhere there in Galilee where Jesus opened his mouth and spoke these words. I've titled the message today, The Blessed Life. I think there's actually a book by that title, which I've never read, but I have read this book, The Blessed Life. I appreciate the blessings of the Lord, don't you? We want the blessings of the Lord. His blessings are wonderful blessings, and the Bible speaks of the blessings of the Lord. To our men this morning, I I taught a lesson called The Blessed Man, and today I'm talking to you about the blessed life. Uh, The Bible talks about the blessing of the Lord, both Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, verses like Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. And that just simply means this. When God blesses a person, they do not have to stoop to dishonest means to be blessed. God's blessings are good, but they're also holy and righteous. Genesis, the Lord talked to Abraham, and he said, I'm going to bless you, and I will make your name great, and I will even make you a blessing. So God said, not only I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. And hasn't Abraham been used to bless the world? The psalmist said, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. In Ezekiel, he said, I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will call showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Don't you want that? Showers of blessing on our lives, on our ministry, on this work, on this hill. One of our brothers had a vision, and he saw the rivers of blessing just flowing off, and I believe that that is God's purpose and plan. I believe he wants us to trust him. But much of the blessings spoken in the Old Testament were physical, and that is material blessings. However, in the New Testament, we're presented, certainly the Lord will meet our needs, but we're presented with greater blessings. And you know, the greater blessings are the spiritual blessings that the Lord gives us. That's why they're greater. What are spiritual blessings? Spiritual blessings are simply those riches of His grace that had been purchased through his, the son, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And there are the spiritual blessings that come from the father through his son by the blessed Holy Spirit. And certainly you know that everything God does in your life is going to be done by the father through the son and by the precious Holy Spirit in our lives. For instance, Ephesians says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, not is going to, but has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is a wealth of resource of the blessing of the Lord. Everything we have, everything rather that we need is found in Jesus Christ. That name unlocks 
heaven's blessing of salvation and healing and grace and peace and all the things and reconciliation and everything that Jesus purchased for us that the Father wants to do. I will tell you this, the greatest blessings are the spiritual blessings. Why are the the spiritual blessings greater? Several reasons. One is they cost more. As we think about communion today, I thought about 1 Peter 1.18 that says, You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You realize that everything that God has done through His Son is because of His shed blood. The most expensive thing known in the universe is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that was the price that was paid for, our, for the spiritual blessings. Not not only are spiritual blessings greater because they cost more, but because they're eternal. They're not temporal. Have you noticed your car wears out? Have you noticed your clothes wear out? Have you noticed sometimes you wear out? Everything in this earthly world, in this physical world, is passing and perishing. And you realize many, most of humanity, we're clinging to things. We're clinging to money. We're clinging to this world. We're holding on to it. We're investing time in it. I'm telling you, it's passing away. But the blessings found through Jesus Christ and His saving grace, they are never, never, never going to pass. They are eternal blessings. Glory to God. Paul said this, In 2 Corinthians 4.18, he said, don't look. That is, don't fix your gaze on it. Don't get enamored. Don't look on the things which are seen, but look on the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary and passing, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The greatest things are the spiritual things. The greatest blessings are not what you can see, but it's, it's what you can't see. It's what the Holy Spirit does within us, saving us, reconciling us, filling us with His love and grace. And not only that, not only are the spiritual blessings greater than physical blessings, it's because they're available to every human being. I don't know about you, but I like to watch these these house shows where they're they're redecorating these houses or they're buying houses and, and look at some of those things. And I realize there are things that within my earthly life I'll never reach. I'll never have a house in Hawaii or in the mountains of, you know, this and that. I'll probably never have a Mercedes Benz, nor do I really need one or want one. The things that are without my reach, there are things without your reach. But I can tell you this, glory to God, Jesus is in the reach of everyone. He can reach you, and he, you can reach him, because it's... <coughs> It's not about, pardon me, it's not about power, it's not about position, it's not about economic resources, it's about the grace of God. The poorest one among us, the one that has the least among us, can reach Jesus Christ and can be blessed by Jesus Christ. Come on, can know Jesus Christ, can have the Holy Spirit, can have all the blessing of God, because it's, God is no respecter of persons. His love does not discriminate. The spiritual blessings are greater. It's because spiritual blessings lead to godliness and not to ungodliness. I've watched people. I've watched, and you have too. I've watched people that had nothing, and they came to Jesus Christ. Had, didn't have two nickels to rub together. 
And they came to Jesus Christ. And Jesus forgave them and, and joined him, them to his, uh, his forever family. And then as they begin to obey God, God began to bless them in the physical realm. God began to bless their business. God began to fill their bank account up. They began to get things. And those very physical things that God blessed them caused their heart to become hard. And many of those people don't even, pardon me, don't even attend a church anymore. Physical blessings, there's a danger in that. They can lead you away from God. But I can tell you this, the spiritual blessings keep you close to God. Spiritual blessings lead to faithfulness and holiness and righteousness and godliness and faithfulness to Him. Spiritual blessings are greater. The text that I want to read to you is a large text, and I may not get to all of this. In fact, each of these could be a sermon in itself. But all I can tell you is this is what's on my heart this week. And I have to go with that. They're called the Beatitudes. And they're spiritual principles by which the kingdom of God operate. And they really tell us how we can come to God and how we can know God. But they don't leave us there. They're so comprehensive. They, they tell us how to walk with God. They tell us how to please God. These Beatitudes tell us how to have a proper perspective on life. They even tell us to have a pro how to have a proper perspective when we're suffering. And it's so different than the world. It's so different than the vantage point of the world. I'd like to read them to you. They'll be on the screen. Here's how it reads. And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain. That's Jesus. Went on the, up on a mountain. When he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. And that just doesn't really feel like a blessing. It doesn't even look like a blessing. Blessed are you when, you, when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice. How strange is that? We don't feel like rejoicing when we get that stuff. But these principles are completely contrary to the earthly carnal way of thinking. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Does it seem like the blessed life? But it is. It is. First of all, we see the crowd. And we see a very large crowd. We see the disciples. And in this large crowd, as, we, as you read through the Gospels, you see there's, all the, there's always these crowds until, until the, he was moving to the cross. There's always, there was always the crowd. Now, this week, I'm so grateful for everyone that participated in our Harvest Fest. We saw anywhere, and is our estimation, anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people were on this property. It was amazing. And I watched God's people. I watched 
people praying. I watched those handing out candy. I watched those helping the kids with pony rides and the petting zoo. And I watched those that were doing the hayride and the bounce houses. And I watched all of God's people chipping in and, and helping. And then afterwards, helping to clean up. And we had a chance this week to let our community know that we're here. And what great advertisement for our church. And that, that's that parking lot over here, in the doctor's parking lot over here, that whole thing was filled all the way to the back. That whole thing was filled. All this was filled. There was hundreds of people here in all the crowds. But I, I've noticed this about Jesus. Jesus was never impressed with the crowds. In St. John 2.25, John I think it is, he says he didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. You know, he knows our commitment. He can look over a crowd and we may think, oh, this crowd is great. But he may look and realize there may be only two people in that crowd that truly love him and serve him. And there was a huge crowd that came. And Jesus was doing miracles. And Jesus was feeding them. And, I mean, this was the greatest show in town. And they were following him. But I, I think there's a lot of people that are in the crowd today and they don't really understand truly what the gospel is. They don't truly understand what it truly means to follow Jesus. How to come to God. How to walk with God. The, the Beatitudes clearly show us the, the Beatitudes. The attitudes of how do I approach God? How do I relate to other people? How do I deal with suffering? How do I follow God? And here's this crowd. And Jesus sees the crowd. And he wants to tell them, he wants to tell his disciples, especially because they're going to be the ones that, that, that take the kingdom on when he's gone. They're going to be the ones that take the gospel to the entire world. He wants to get a good spiritual principles under these guys. But he also wants the crowd to know. I've noticed this about Jesus. Jesus' gospel is so different, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> so different than the gospel. Thank you, Carlos. It's so different than the gospel that, uh, that we hear today. Jesus never told people, just come to me, I'm going to take all your problems away. Sometimes receiving Jesus, you get more problems. You ever notice that? I heard someone on TV say that this morning. Sometimes you come to Jesus, and certainly it's a blessing, but the blessed life, sometimes when you say yes to Jesus, you get enemies. And in this crowd of people, there were four different kinds of heart, as they learned later on in Matthew. There was the hard heart that says, I want nothing to do with Jesus. There was the shallow here that says, man, this is great. Look at all these blessings. And it's that person that said, I'm going to be with you forever. And they don't make it back to the next service. And then there's the cluttered soil of thorny soil. as someone who starts following Jesus. And over time, those thorns kill the fire. Over time, those thorns choke out the passion for God. Over time, those, those, those thorns choke out our desire for God. And then all of a sudden, it's like, a, it's like a python that just squeezes the life out. It's a process. But also in this crowd, there were those that were the good soil. And the good soil, what does that represent, Pastor? It represents people that said, Jesus, I'm not serving you for what you can do for me. I'm serving you because I love you. And come thick or thin, come good or bad, come blessing or trial, 
I'm going to be faithful to my commitment, to my baptismal commitment. When I was buried in the waters of baptism and I came out of the waters of baptism, the old life is not what I'm committed to anymore. That life is dead and I, I follow Jesus now. And they persevere in their faith. There is no genuine faith without a persevering faith. Anything that's not persevering faith is not real faith. And here the crowd is. But as Jesus would move toward the cross, he would lose the crowd. To finally, in the sixth chapter of John, it said this of all the crowds. Now, now listen, these are the ones he did miracles for. These are the ones he fed. These are the ones that kept him up at night. These are the ones where him and his disciples couldn't even find time to rest because they were constantly coming and wanting something from him. And all he wanted from them was to trust him and to commit their lives to him. But what does it say of the crowds? Many of his disciples followed him no more. No more. I think in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus probably spent several days preaching this sermon. It could have been one, one fell sermon, one fell swoop. But I think it was over several days. It seems like to me it's topically put together by Matthew. And so this crowd heard Jesus and his teaching. And here's the teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you'll notice that this is poor in spirit. Jesus is not advocating poverty for all of God's people. I don't know if you've looked around our world. Where there is poverty, there is not blessing. Where there is poverty, there is dysfunction. There is crime. Where there is poverty, there is suffering. Jesus doesn't exalt poverty but what he says here is blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, in, in, when the Bible mentions poor, it mentions poor in different ways. Sometimes it's someone that has something, but it's just not a lot. Sometimes it's someone who has, I mean, just barely enough. And then there's another word used for abject poverty. Literally, literally nothing at all. And that is what... Jesus is indicating here. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And in simple terms, what this is, it's a recognition of our genuine spiritual need. What does that mean? Poor in spirit means spiritual bankruptcy. And what it means is that everyone that's ever been born in Adam's fallen race is spiritually bankrupt. Everyone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Hear that? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Every one of us, every human being to ever live, no matter who they are, on our own, we are spiritually bankrupt. And it's a picture. It's a picture here of really how a person comes to God. Look at Luke chapter 18 quickly. Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, we have four pictures here. We have a picture of humility. 
that Jesus is illustrating, and that's what poor in spirit is. Poor in spirit is a humble spirit. It's a spirit that recognizes truly what we are without Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, here's what it says. And he spoke a parable of those who trusted in himself that they were righteous and he and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, with himself. God, I thank you. Think about this prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Well, that's, you know, if you start that way, you know you're in a bad place. I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, unjust, adulterer, etc. Or even as this tax collector. Who would pray such a prayer? I'll tell you who would pray such a prayer. Someone who's not poor in spirit. Someone who's the opposite of that. But look at this tax collector. Tax collector were, were in that day were despised people. I don't have time to go in the background. They were some of the most despised people in Israel. And look at this. And he says, and the tax collector, verse 13, standing afar off, was not so much, would, would not so much raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Exalted. Poor, in other words, the person who is poor in spirit can approach God and get justification. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? There's is the kingdom of heaven. Now, read on. They were brought infants to him, verse 15, that he might touch them. When his disciples saw it, he rebuked them. Jesus called them to himself. Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verse 17, assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will by no means enter into it. What do we know about a little child? A little child is completely dependent, 100% dependent. He can't go to work. He's just a little child. He doesn't have strength. A child is dependent. And he's saying this, the kingdom of heaven is filled with people who will depend on their heavenly father. He, that's what he's saying. And then look at this next one. And then in verse 18, a young ruler came to him. A certain ruler came to him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good. Uh, no one but, but is good but God. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, murder, steal, uh, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He said, all of these have I kept since my youth. Now he's saying, I've never broken one of these. Well, I can tell you, I can't say that. Can you? He had a very high opinion of himself. Do you think he was poor in spirit? Do you think he recognized his need? Why do you think Jesus gave him the law? Because the law can't save you. Why would Jesus give him the law? The law is like a mirror. The law shows us our need. But there's no power within the law to save us. It's like a mirror that says this is what you should do. And it shows our flaws. It brings conviction. So there's a useful, uh, usefulness of the law. So when, Je when Jesus heard these things, he said, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now then we realize now he's not near as spiritual as he thinks he is. 
Verse 23, but when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. So what is this? What is this? It's a description. In, there's two people there, the tax collector and the child, that, that demonstrate a humble heart in approaching God. And then you have the Pharisee and the rich young ruler, you have them with pride, the opposite of having, being poor in spirit. Peter had the proper attitude when the Lord came in Luke 5, and he, he said, let me use your boat. And he used his boat, and he, fit, and, and he preached to the people. And then he said, let out a little, let out a little from, the, from the shore and let down your net. And he said, Lord, we fished all night. You know, hey, you're the preacher. Just do your preaching. We're the fishermen. You're a carpenter and a preacher. You just let us do the fishing. We fished all night, didn't catch anything. But he said, but nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And they let down a net, and there was such an incredible catch of fish that the nets began to break. They called their partners. It was incredibly, uh, you know, just a miracle. And then all of a sudden, Peter falls under conviction. Here's what he says. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. It's an honest confession of what we are. Not trying to embellish, but being honest with God. And I think there's a lot of people today in church that they just they deal around the edges, oh, forgive me for this, but why don't we get specific with God and really be honest with Him and have a poor in heart spirit? Here's what I've learned. The first thing the true gospel preaching does is to show us our helplessness and hopelessness before a holy God. Before blessing can come, the gospel confronts us with our hopelessness and our helplessness without God. Nothing could we offer Him. Nothing could merit salvation. And we see the gospel, what it truly is, will be like Isaiah, woe is me. If you truly see God, if you truly see His demands, if you truly see who you are and not blinded by our pride, what you're going to say, woe is me. I mean, here's Isaiah, a, a prophet, a holy prophet of God. And he even said, in the, in the light of God's holiness, I am so wicked, my tongue is wicked. And what's the most holy thing of a prophet? His speech. That's what he does. He said, even my speech is contemptible to you because you are so holy. Woe is me. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't build up anybody's self-esteem. The gospel has come to slay us and show us that we are bankrupt without God. There's only one way to get in the presence of the Lord. Remember, you used to say to our kids, they'd say, I want this. What's, say the right word. What's the word? Say, give, give me the word, please. And that would be the, yeah, you can do it now. You can have the cookie or whatever. Well, let me tell you that the access to God is granted only one way, and it's only granted to the poor in spirit. It's only granted to those who will humbly acknowledge their sin and acknowledge that they need, they desperately need God. It says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where does God dwell? Where does God dwell? Isaiah, the great prophet, tells us where God dwells, where God lives. It's clearly delineated in Isaiah 57, 15. I want you to look at this verse. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. 
Think about it. He inhabits eternity. He's so vast and so immense. You can't contain him. He inhabits all of eternity at the same time. Eternity past, eternity presence. There was no beginning of him. There'll be no ending. He is an eternal God. But look what God has promised to do. Whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and a holy place. Where's the high and holy place? It's a low place. The high and holy place is a low place. The high place in God's eyes is a low place. Look at it. I dwell with him who is contrite. I dwell with him who has a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite one. God says in his psalm, he dwells far off from the prideful, but from the humble and contrite, he will draw near to the broken. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God right now. If you're humble in heart, you have God in your life. And the most holy people I've ever known have been simple people that really didn't have much in this world. But there was a godness about them. There was a, there was a godliness. There was a holiness. There was a sense of God's presence in them. Why? Because God's high and holy place is with the contrite, with the broken ones. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <clears throat> And I'll give you one more. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. How strange is that? For, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn. That's not the way we think. That's not the way we think. Blessed are they that mourn. For, theirs, for they will be comforted. Mourning. We feel sorry for people who mourn. But here, this mourning is very specific. This mourning is, I call it, the, it's properly responding to the realization of our spiritual poverty. It's the only proper response. It's a, it's a heart of genuine repentance. It's, it's mourning. It's, it's grieving over the things God grieves over. It's having a heart after God. Your heart is now in tune with God, and you grieve with what God grieves over. Do you know that as Christians, as we walk in the Holy Spirit, we begin to feel what God feels for our world. We begin to grieve about the unfaithfulness toward God, both in our world and both in the church. We grieve over the wicked immorality we see in the world and how blatant it's become. It breaks our heart, does it not? The world that God created to be holy has become corrupt and it breaks our hearts. The cruelty, the suffering, the little children that suffer. Sometimes children suffer at the hands of wicked parents. Some children are not even wanted by their parents. They're a nuisance to them. Doesn't that break your heart? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we get those pajamas for those orphans? For those foster kids, shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we build, shouldn't we take the money off this board and get it done? Because we got to build something for children. Why, why do you think we did our harvest fest? I could have been home watching a ball game or something. Because I knew that kids needed a safe place. I had a grandfather drive up out here. He drove his truck out and could tell he wanted to talk. So I went over to his truck. He said, 
I'm looking for a safe place for my grandchildren. That's what he said. Never saw this man before. I said, well, you've come to the right place. I said, we've got security out here. We've got a retired sheriff that's, that's patrolling out here. He's, he's protecting us. And I said, we've got other security here. I said, this is a great place. Don't you think every child deserves to be cared for in love? Don't you think every child needs to have a children's church or a, a Sunday school class where they're telling them about Jesus, how they can know God, how they can walk in the blessed life? Every child needs that. And we ought to mourn when we see the hurt and the cruelty in our world. We ought to mourn over our own personal failures. I can tell you this. Listen, listen. You want to know what a move of God is? If you can spot sin in someone else's life, that is not a move of God. If you can spot sin in your own life, you're in the middle of revival. Because it's hard to spot our own sin. And when God shows it to us, we ought to mourn. We ought to grieve that we're more, not more like Jesus. Why did I say that like that? Why did I get angry? Why did I think that? Oh, God, I thought I, I, thought I was a better Christian than that. God, help us. I'm closing. David sinned greatly against God. And let me tell you this about forgiveness. Just because God forgives doesn't mean that there's not a reaping Many times we reap much more than we sow. David committed a horrible sin of adultery, which is a wicked, wicked sin. And it damages families. It breaks marriage covenants. And there's a lot of adultery in the world. But I'm going to tell you something. If God pulled the, 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 the top off the American church, there's a lot of adultery in churches. And God hates it. David sinned. And it cost him the rest of his life, cost him his family, cost him his kids. But in, 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 in mercy, he, he comes back to God. There was a prophet named Nathan that had the courage to speak the truth. Are you with me? Nathan said, you are the man. You are, thou art the man. Remember that? Thou art the man. He got mad at another guy's sin. In a little story, the little parable he told. Isn't it amazing how we can be outraged about everybody else's sin? What about our sin? And then Nathan said, he said, what should be done? That man ought to die. And he looked at him and said, thou art the man. You're the man. And we have David's repentance. Part of it in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. In whose spirit there is no deceit. He said, when I kept silent, they, they, said, they said that David might have been a year without repenting. Just going through the motions and not becoming poor in spirit and not mourning over his sin. See, we think we get by. You don't get by with your sin. No one gets by with sin. No lost person gets by with it and no one in the church gets by with it either. The best thing we can do with sin is immediately run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He's merciful. The old, the old timers used to say, keep short accounts. Remember that? The old timers used to say that. In other words, don't live in sin a year. If you fail, go back to God quickly. Yeah, I tell you, I believe you mitigate a lot of the consequences if you go quickly. He said, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. The vitality was turned into, uh, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgressions. 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. As part of David's mourning, he mourned. As our musicians are coming and our singers are coming, we're going to have a, just a prayer here together. But Paul, the great apostle, talked about repentance, true repentance. You know there's a true repentance called godly sorrow, and there's a, there's a sorrow of the world. And we need to be very careful about this. I'll read this. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry. Paul's preaching made them sorry. You know, not all preaching is meant to make us kick our heels up and, and all get a good chuckle. Some, some preaching is meant to just slay us and bring us back to Christ. He said it made you sorry, but that, that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Paul said, listen, this kind of preaching doesn't, you don't lose, you gain. Notice verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligent produced in you? What clearing of yourself? What indignation? What fear? What vehement desire? What zeal? What vindication? In all these things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. In other words, true repentance brings us to God. It brings us back in obedience. It, it puts us in right relationship with God. When we truly repent, we truly mourn. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is godly sorrow produces a godly, obedient life. Makes a break with sin. The sorrow of the world leaves a person unchanged. It's the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas regretted what he did. Judas hated the consequence, but he didn't ever repent. He went out and hung himself. Peter denied the Lord, and the Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. That wasn't crocodile tears. He was truly broken. He thought he was a better man than that. And you know, we, we think we're better sometimes, and we're not. We still deal with stuff. But yet, wasn't Jesus compassionate by the fire and restored him? And restored him. Well, that was what was on my heart today. We didn't get very far, but I want you to stand with me, if you would, please. <clears throat> I think what the Holy Spirit wants from us today is this. Do you need to repent of something? Do you need to repent? Oh, well, Pastor, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Listen, I've been in the church this long. It doesn't matter how long if you've been in the church a day, a week, a month, a year, or 50 years. Have you sinned against the Lord? Have I sinned against the Lord? What are you talking about, Pastor? You know there's sins of omission, there's sins of commission. God says, give that money. And you say, no, I'm going to spend it on a boat. You sinned. God says, give that money. No, I'm going to buy Starbucks. You sinned against God. Sins of omission, just something God tells you to do. And you just don't do it. God says, get involved in the church. Stop missing on Sunday. No, I want to go to the ball game. No, I want to go to the fishing hole. No, I want to go worship God in nature. Well, that's not where God's people are. 
and the Holy Spirit's talked and talked, you've ignored him. You don't even care what he says anymore. You've sinned. God says don't gossip. You cut somebody to pieces behind their back. You never would have said it if they were there. You're a gossip. You need to repent. Men, what do you do when you're at home? What do you do when you're on your computer? Oh, well, you know, I'm just looking at a few pictures, Pastor. You know, you know how guys are. No, you're wicked. You need to, you need to repent. It's wicked. Wicked in the sight of God. And it's, it's corrupting the young men primarily, not just young men. Pornography's corrupting young men in America. And then they get married and they can't even have a normal marriage because they've let demons in. You need to repent and get clean before God because God sees it. God sees it. What are you talking about, Pastor? We need to repent? Well, let me ask you this. That money that you stole out of the bin at work, that $5 and you never put it back, or $10 and you never put it back, and you thought, well, hey, the CEO's getting rich. No, you're a thief. You need to repent. You're dishonest. God says Christians don't steal. Shall I go on? Now, I don't know any of this about any of you particulars. Y'all are all guilty now. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you that we've got to get clean before God. Have you gossiped? Have you had evil thought life? Have you, have you failed to do what God said? On and on. And listen, I'll close with this, but listen. Repentance is not something you do at one time. Repentance is a lifestyle you live as the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. And, and, the, and, and the, the most freeing words, I promise you, the most freeing words is, Lord, I've sinned. Hard words to say because we don't want to admit that we're not as good as we think we are. But one of the most freeing words is, Lord, I've sinned. I've sinned. Please forgive me. So right now, you and the Lord right there, Right there, right now, just you and the Lord have a little private meeting. You and the Lord have a private meeting. You and the Lord. Lord, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my, I failed you, Lord. I didn't want to fail you. didn't plan to, but I know I did. Forgive me, Lord. Won't you mourn over that? Won't you see it for what God says it is? Pride, self-centeredness. Self-centered thinking. So many Christians today are just selfish. They, they don't hardly think in a week about another believer. They don't think about how they can bless another believer or suffering believer or call someone because they're hurting. They think of you know, themselves. That's selfishness. Repent of selfishness. It's a sin. God says, think not only on your own interests, but on the interests of others. So, Father, I pray the blood of Jesus would do a work. Sprinkle the blood upon us today. Lord, we need to be clean from all sin. We need to be poor in spirit. We need to mourn over our sin and unrighteousness. I want you to cleanse us. I want you to wash me, Lord. Tell him, Lord, I want you to wash me. I want to be the Christian you want me to be. I've fallen so many times, but, Lord, I'm serving you. I'm trusting you, and I ask you to make me clean on the inside. Make me clean by your blood. Make me clean by your Holy Spirit. Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me because you are a merciful Heavenly Father. And Lord, I ask you to empower us to live for you every day. Empower us, oh God. Empower us. Let's begin to sing.
just worship him. What can I do? Oh, but offer this heart, oh God, completely to you. What can I say? So what could I say? Oh, and what, what could I, I do? Sunday's always the highlight of my week. The, uh, I think the application the Holy Spirit wants to place upon us is just uh, uh, the action of striving after humility. I mean, there's so many ways that we can strive after humility. You know, Jesus even said, don't take the best seat at the banquet. Just little things. Take the least seat. But developing a, a heart that's poor in spirit, that we, we need him every day. Every day we need him. Every day we need his grace and help. And he says this, he gives grace to the humble. That's where you get it. He multiplies grace to the humble. So if you'll humble yourself before him every day, and Lord, I need you. And you know what? Another aspect in fruit of humility is knowing that you need the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Listen, we need one another, desperately need one another. And we depend on each other. I mean, just from my vantage point as a pastor, there are gifts that I just don't have. And I'll never have them. I'll never have them. It's not who God's created me to be. But I look around the body and I realize what incredible talents God has given. And I say, oh, come here, Jason. I say, I don't have that gift. Jason, I need you. Man, I need you, Jason. Come here, Donna. And I say, oh, I don't, have, I don't have that gift. But, oh, Donna has a gift. I need Donna. Donna has the gift, right? Right, guys? Lock arms with the person next to you. This is our clothes. Hope I'm not embarrassing you guys. You're on camera. Let's pray for each other as we close. Father, we lift up our brothers and our sisters today.
I pray the grace of God on them. Lord, we see in humility, we see the grace of God in this church. We see such wonderful talents in such vast areas. And Lord, you fitly joined us together. And I pray for a new unity, a new love, a new grace, a new sense of selflessness in each of our lives, oh God, that in the name of Jesus, that we would be so anointed to do the work of God and see the manifold wisdom of God in this place. Demonstrate yourself. Bless my brothers. Bless my sisters. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. That's our close today. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord. Love each other. Be dismissed in Jesus' name.